This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Vinigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Glenn Frankel. He is an author, academic, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He worked for many years for the Washington Post, where he was bureau chief in Southern Africa, Jerusalem, and London, and editor of the Washington Post Sunday magazine. He has written books such as The Searchers, The Making of an American Legend, and High Noon, The Hollywood Blacklist, and The Making of an American Classic. In addition, he has written Beyond the Promised Land, Jews and Arabs on the Hard Road to a New Israel, which won the National Jewish Book Award, as well as Ravonia's Children, Three Families and the Cost of Conscience in White South Africa, which was a finalist prize for the Allen Patton Award, South Africa's most prestigious literary prize. I'd like to thank Mr. Frankel for joining us to discuss two amazing Hollywood westerns, The Searchers and High Noon. Well, thanks, Anand. It's nice to be here. I mean, one of the reasons I like these two westerns is because they're so well-made and they represent two contrasting styles of movie-making. John Ford's The Searchers, you have all this beautiful visual cinematography, you have all these subtleties, whereas in High Noon, it's basically stripped down and you have, like, very clear sides of good and bad and... It's almost like you're delaying all the violence until the very end, whereas The Searches is almost every frame in some form or another, except for the comedy scenes, just full of violence in some way or another. So what do you think? Why do you like these two films? Well, I think you've put your finger on a lot of it. I mean, they're two very different examples of what you can do with cinema and of great cinematic art. The Searchers is a two-hour sort of visual epic um, with a lot of characters, it takes place over a five-year period, the narrative. Um, as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of violence, or at least a lot of violence implied. We don't see that much violence, per se, in the shooting, but we see um, the, re- the impact of the violence on people who are left behind, and it's devastating. And if it weren't for that comic, those comic scenes interspersed, I think it would be very, very grim. Nonetheless, it's just beautifully shot. It's a very expensive, big-time Hollywood movie uh, in VistaVision and, you know, Technicolor and all of that, everything that 1956 Hollywood had to offer. Uh, High Noon is 86 minutes long. It's a black and white. It was made on a, you know, on a shoestring budget. It was uh, the last film on an old contract before the Stanley Kramer Company, the folks who made it, went on to uh, much bigger things with Columbia Pictures. So it was almost an afterthought. Um, And it's only got one thing on its mind. The train's arriving at noon, and when it gets there, uh, the bad guy's going to step out of the train, and with his three hired gunmen, he's going to kill the marshal who sent him to prison. And so we've got 80 minutes to, uh, to get there. Uh, we've got the marshal moving through town, looking for allies, looking for supporters among his friends and the good citizens of the fictional Hadleyville. And so it, it is grim and rem- relentless, um, and as I say, single-minded. Yet they're both they're both wonderful films for so many reasons, Anand. I mean, part of it is what they tell us about ourselves, what they tell us about the eras they were made in, um, the complexity of 
of searchers because it's both giving us the sort of standard great cowboys and Indians type movie with the great John Wayne, you know, as the hero. Um, it looks and feels like just a great, you know, a classic Western. And yet, actually, uh, the director, uh, John Ford, is undermining a lot of those Western myths, even as he's uh, presenting them to us. And High Noon is so great, I think, because it does reflect the time it was made in, because it, it's, a, it's a journey into the heart of what courage is, reluctant courage. It's got great performances, great writing. Um, you know, uh, so they're just each one in its own way is a masterpiece of the kind of film it's trying to be. I totally agree. And I want to bring up John Wayne, which is a fascinating comparison to High Noon, because John Wayne, he hated the movie. And he and Howard Hawks later on made Rio Bravo, which if I haven't seen, but which is like the opposite of High Noon in how it treats the hero, how it treats the community and more. And And of course, Rio Bravo is a much longer film. I checked. It's like 144-something minutes or so. So what do you think is the reason why John Wayne hated it? I mean, Well, it was pretty clear about that. Um, there are a couple of things. I mean, remember, High Noon is made in 1951. It's the height of the Red Scare and the Hollywood Blacklist. And uh, the House on American Activities Committee has come out to Los Angeles and is conducting an investigation into the so-called communist infiltration of the motion picture industry. Wayne was a, a very conservative, anti-communist right-winger. He was, at that point, was the head of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. So he led the charge against this. Meanwhile, High Noon is being made. It was written, and the associate producer was Carl Foreman, a former member of the American Communist Party. And in the middle of the film shoot, Carl is called to testify before the committee, and he refuses to cooperate. And he's taken off High Noon at the end of the, of the film, but it's still his movie, and Wayne knows that. So for Wayne, it's a very simple equation. Uh, Carl Foreman, uh, you know, wrote and produced High Noon. Carl Foreman was a member of the Communist Party. Therefore, High Noon must be a communist movie. And he finds, you know, some justification. There is a sort of left-wing critique embedded in the movie of the community of Hadleyville, this sort of bourgeois community that where its members are uh, uh, comfortable and refuse to take a stand when the bad guys come to town to kill the marshal who has helped them make it a stable community. So there's a sort of, you know, uh, lack of moral courage. There's a sort of moral corruption at the heart of the community. And Wayne kind of smelled out this sort of leftist critique, if you will. And, and those are the reasons, essentially, why he disliked the movie so intensely. Um, and uh, it was a political thing for him. And you're right. I mean, he and Howard Hawks made Real Bravo, which is also a very fine movie, but a very, very different movie, kind of as their response. Um, but things get complicated in Hollywood. The star of High Noon was Gary Cooper, another great Western hero and icon. And another strong anti-communist. But Gary Cooper really thought High Noon was a, had a great script. He thought Carl Foreman was a great writer. He loved working on the movie. He needed a good movie at that point in his career in 1951. And he stuck by Carl Foreman even after uh, he was called to test, after Foreman was called to testify. And so ironically, you know, when Cooper is nominated for Best Actor, uh, and he can't make the event because he's uh, on a film shoot in Mexico. He asks John Wayne to go and accept his Oscar for him. 
And Wayne does it. Um, because after all, Gary Cooper's older, he's a more senior member of the Hollywood aristocracy, and Wayne was many things, but he was also deferential to his elders. And so we have this wonderful uh, moment, and you can see it on YouTube, uh, of Wayne accepting the Oscar and saying, what a great movie Hyde was. So Hollywood's a complicated place, but the politics of the blacklist and the Red Scare really... Uh, damaged the community of Hollywood, set people against each other, former business partners, even family members. And ultimately, I guess you could say it set John Wayne against Gary Cooper. Before I go on to discuss more about The Searchers and The High Noon and the history behind these films, I want to know, ask what you think about the effects of this blacklist. Do you think the effects are still there? And one of the things I've noticed is that some conservatives were actually defending the blacklist during the early 2000s, saying that they were the right thing to do, and that Joseph McCarthy was a kind of hero who was going after evil communists. Well, the blacklist, uh, as I suggested earlier, was very damaging to Hollywood. I mean, you have to put it in the context of the times. Remember, this is after World, you know, World War II's over. Our former close allies, the Soviet Union, are now our, our arch rivals and enemies. There, there, there's a, a nuclear arms race going on and Cold War going on between the West and the Soviet Empire, and it goes on for almost 50 years, and it's quite lethal. There, there are many, you know, uh, a lot of damage done. Um, 1951 was the time when we had troops fighting in Korea against communism, and Something like 80,000 American soldiers had been killed or wounded by September 1951 when Heinen was shot. Um, there was a sense of anxiety in the country that was quite strong, and that I think the people of, of the House on American Activities Committee and Senator McCarthy, who was running a separate investigation, mostly into so-called communists in the government, um, these guys took full advantage of the anxieties of the time. Um, I don't know that we see the damage directly today, but I do think it's fair to say that there are echoes of what happened in 1951 in our politics today. The brutal, toxic um, rhetoric that was used to attack enemies, the sense of enemies, the sense that outsiders were stealing our country and our culture, um, and then we and that we needed to claw the country back from them. Back then, the demonization of people. Uh, back then, the, the, you know, the, the, the folks who were targeted that way were left, leftists, immigrants to an extent, Jews in Hollywood and elsewhere. These were the outsiders who were damaging our country and who needed to be dealt with. And, um, you know, the press was involved in this. The committee, as I say, in its investigation, which called people to the stand but didn't allow them to, you know, uh, uh, consult with lawyers didn't allow them to face their accusers. The committee served as sort of judge, jury, and executioner without uh, any kind of, of jurisprudence, um, you know, or, or, or fair trial. I think we're seeing some of those, that same phenomenon, the, the demonizing of outsiders, you know, targeting people, uh, the three branches of government either, you know, promoting this kind of thing or, or not standing up to it there's a danger that we're in that kind of era now. So in that way, yeah, the lessons of McCarthy and the, and, you know, and the Red Scare are still with us and still damaging us in some ways. I, it's hard to find people today who, who will defend McCarthy himself. It's 
pretty clear what it, that he was a, a serious demagogue who actually did damage in many ways to the anti-communist cause in this country. But the idea that we face enemies and that we have to deal with them and deal with them harshly is a, a continual theme, you know, in American politics. And we're certainly looking at the same theme today. Do you think both sides of the political equation use that sense of fear against the enemy, the need to eliminate the outsider, or at least weaken the outsider? Do you think that the left wing and the right wing use that tactic to some degree? Because with Trump and his campaign, there is a question of illegal immigrants and undocumented immigrants, and of course, others, whereas with the Democrats and Hillary Clinton, there was all, the whole basket of deplorables talk, which upset a lot of people. Yeah, well, the basket of deplorables talk, you know, justifiably upset people. It was, a, you know, a, a, a way of demonizing almost half of the electorate. Um, the difference is, of course, that Donald Trump's in the White House and the Republican Party's in control of both houses of Congress and, for that matter, basically the Supreme Court as well. So they have the levers of power. And um, so I, I don't, you know, there are people on the left, of course, who are attempting to demonize their enemies, uh, but they don't have the means. <laughs> and um, and they're not running the government, and they're not tearing up the Constitution. But so, they do have uh, culture, I, I, though, at least, so it seems. Well, both have access to culture, and thanks to, you know, um, uh, social media and the digital media revolution, both have access to large platforms to express their views. But one side, I guess you could say, has all the power of government behind it. And, um, you know, it's, it's in 51, uh, the other branches of government and, for that matter, other parts of our civil society didn't stand up very well against the threat. You know, I, I used to work for The Washington Post. I, I spent 27 years as a journalist and, um, but I, and covered a lot of politics and a lot of back and forth uh, between rival camps. Um, but it surprised me to see how fragile democracy was in 1951 when faced with this kind of anti-democratic threat. The three branches of government, as I say, all sort of faded. Uh, it took many, many years for the courts to uh, strike down some of the basics of the of the Red Scare and of the committee. Um, you know, the political parties didn't stand up to this. The press didn't do a very good job. Uh, our, our, our democracy is more fragile uh, than we think at times. And, and I fear that same thing is there today. Um, people aren't getting, you know, the, the rhetoric is so toxic and so, you know, outrageous at times. The level of racism, um, which, you know, overrides many of these other things, because they really go to the heart of what kind of country we want to be. Um, whether we want to be a fair-minded country, you know, that that is, or whether whether it's important to find those enemies and demonize them and triumph over them and create these these phony dichotomies. Um, that's a real danger point because we're vulnerable. We're an anxious country. Um, our economy looks good, yet, as you know, um, so many people are, are lacking for basics and are not uh, benefiting from, you know, from economic growth. There's so many things at stake here. Um, and the question I, I see is not so much left versus right, but whether the political middle reasserts itself and reasserts its values. Um, uh, that's hard to do in this kind of climate. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I don't think I'm underestimating 
the fragility of where we stand now and really what's at stake. This is a big moment, one we haven't had in a long time. I think it's a. I think it's fair to say that the country was sort of fragile from the very start of its birth. It was birthed in blood. There was a lot of bad blood between the patriots and the loyalists, and the whole War of eighteen twelve business was very dangerous at the time. And then you have the Civil War, where you have the North versus the South, and all the stuff that happened after that. So, it makes sense that this country is facing whatever fragility it has now, because whatever consensus it had for some time. There's definitely a sense of division that is at the heart of America, in my humble opinion. Well, I, I, I take your point, and, and you certainly make a very good point. It's always important to remember that 80 years into the Republic, we, we fought a civil war where, you know, half a million Americans died, <laughs> killed by other Americans. And uh, it's an extraordinary moment. And, you know, um, and we came out of that deeply divided, uh, and 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 some of the things that divided us then divide us now, no question. But I think we're coming off, you know, forged during the the, the New Deal era and and the and uh, World War II. There was a sort of uh, moderate uh, consensus that you know held together more or less, uh, and certainly an international order that it promoted. Um, that that lasted for quite an era, quite quite a long time, for several generations, and I think we're seeing that now. I think you're right in that, you know, there's no reason to assume that that was going to last, and it hasn't lasted, and it, it's very much under threat now. And um, I think there could be some problems with that moderate model that made it untenable because. I don't necessarily think moderatism is the ideal that we should always strive for, but that's my opinion. Well, yeah, and you know, but that—that's you know, the problem. I mean, the seeds of the of the of the destruction of that era, you know, were there, and and then the actions of the people who were running the country, I, I would say, you know, helped lead to its demise. I mean, you had the the Vietnam War, you had you know, you had moments where government far exceeded the bounds of, you know, it's the consensus and the covenant, if you will, that it had with people who elected it. And so inevitably, you know, that is broken down. The question is what replaces it. And uh, I don't think we're, you know, none of us want to see another civil war. Um, and yet the emotions are running so high and, and the divisions in the country are so uh, dramatic. Fortunately, we still have a ballot box. People generally believe in the legitimacy of elections, though our president doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what comes together. Sometimes a challenge like this does bring people together and reminds them of the things that they have in common. It's a great country. You know, I lived abroad for 15 years while I was a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. When you see our country from overseas, um, you see so many of the strengths, um, you know, of our education system and, uh, uh, the basic uh, and of the and the practicality of the two-party system and a number of other things and the essential prosperity plus the the the, the, the millions of people we've absorbed over the years who've made us a stronger country those are all great strengths of, of the United States we have a great constitution and a great you know founded on a great sense of idealism and uh, uh, when we're here in the middle of the battle of course with each other uh, sometimes we forget we, we you know, we lose our perspective. 
But, you know, given uh, what happened in 2016 and given the president we have now, who I think in many ways is an unprecedented figure and one that doesn't really reflect the traditional um, divisions of right and left or the traditional argument, but it's something something different. Um, it's, it's a time of crisis. And, you know, uh, I'm not sanguine that we're going to overcome it, but... It's a challenge that democracies face, and we, we face that challenge. I think you're right. I mean, periodically, all through the history of this democracy, only we're facing a pretty intense challenge right now because this president, I, I think you can make the case, is, is arguably different than any of his predecessors, good, bad, and indifferent as those people were. This guy is, uh, is a, different, uh, uh, a different case. And whether that's like for the better or for the worse will be up for debate, I think, when we see the end of his presidency and when yeah, we look no, back. Yeah, no, we can see. I totally disagree with you about that. I mean, it's pretty obvious that this has not been good for democracy. We don't have to, we don't have to wait to the end of his presidency to, to know that. We, we knew that pretty much the day he took office. I don't know. I have some more positive views on us, certain parts of Trump. Down. On certain, I have some positive views on certain aspects of the Trump presidency, at least. I think in comparison to some of the other Republicans, he's definitely seemed sanier on foreign policy. The sanest of that crowd was, of course, Rand Paul, in my humble opinion. Are we really are we going to talk about High Noon and, or Searchers? Or we'll, are we going to talk we'll go about back to High Noon and Searchers. I couldn't, I couldn't profoundly more uh, disagree with you on what you just said, and Rand Paul included. Um, and Rand Paul is, is more interesting than Trump and I think more of a legitimate politician. Um, haven't heard anything from him lately. So, you know, it seems to me the, uh, about 95% of the Republican Party, including Senator Paul, everyone who, isn't, who hasn't decided they're not running for re-election, basically um, lying very low or else going along with, you know, an anti-democratic leader. So, you know... Uh, it's sad to see. It's sort of like the citizens of Hadleyville getting back to high noon. They face a moral challenge, and you know, and they react. You know, and different people have to decide what's important, what their values are, and um, you know, uh, that's what we're seeing play out now. And everybody gets a chance to, you know, that's the thing. Everybody gets a chance to make a decision. Even those people who don't vote are, in essence, making a decision. So. Um, but um, let's go back to the movies, perhaps. Okay. So when we go back to the searchers, there's someone we need to know about, Cynthia Ann Parker. And in your book, you dealt more with how her struggles reflected and how the struggles of the characters in the searchers played out. Would you like to share with our listeners a little more about Cynthia Ann Parker? Well, for those folks who grew up in Texas, they'd heard of Cynthia Ann Parker because, you know, she's part of the curriculum in middle school in Texas public schools. But for the rest of us, uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York. I'd never heard of her. She's a young, uh, she was nine years old, part of a large uh, family that settled in Texas uh, when it was still part of Mexican territory and when it became independent. And in uh, May 1836, Comanches attack the fortified settlement where her and her family are living, and they kidnap her and four other young people and take them off to Comanche territory. And she grows up as a Comanche eventually marries a Comanche, has three uh, children, and then is recaptured 24 years later by Texas Rangers and Cavalrymen. And so her story became kind of an old frontier myth of the white 
Comanche, who's brought back to civilization, um, and it, it, it and it engendered or, or touched off a lot of stories about her over the years. Each generation told the story of Cynthia Ann, uh, changed the parts they didn't like, added some bits here and there until it became a genuine frontier uh, foundational myth, if you will. And so The Searchers comes along, and originally it's a novel by a screenwriter named Alan LeMay, and the great John Ford, who is uh, the great director of Westerns in the 1940s and 50s, uh, mostly starring John Wayne, he turns it into this fabulous fabulous epic about uh, the Texas frontier. In that case, a young girl is kidnapped, the rest of her family is killed, and he focuses on her uncle and... Uh, uh, her adopted brother, who searched for her over a five-year period. And so we're, we're traveling through the end of what is the largest war on American soil between Comanches and, and, and Americans and Texans, which started in 1836, around the time of her abduction, and continued for 40 years. Um, and we're looking at it from the point of view of the settlers themselves, of course, but we're also seeing some of the injustices and some of the and the hatred that goes back and forth and the and the victims of this. And Cynthia Ann's own story reflects this. Um, and so she's where it all begins, um, but the searchers is really where where it comes to a climax. Thank you for your summary. And when I thought of Cynthia Ann Parker, and when she came back, she didn't want to come back. She felt more at home with the Indians. And that's kind of touched on with the searches where Debbie, the character who's played by Natalie Wood as an adult, she sort of doesn't want to come back to home. Could that be because she's adopted the Comanche lifestyle? Or maybe she feels traumatized that she's defiled by interracial sex with an Indian man, and so she can't come back to the white society? Or could it be both? Well, the idea of being defiled and all, I don't think she felt that way, um, either in the movie or certainly the original Cynthia Ann. But you're right in that, um, you know, she's kidnapped at, at age nine and uh, and taken off. And the Comanches couldn't have had, if they'd had a team of psychologists, they couldn't have done a better job of Indianizing the people uh, who they kidnapped, the young people. Um, they A family adopted her. She became part of that world. The Comanches needed to replenish their population. It's pretty tough out there on the high plains of Comancheria uh, in the Texas panhandle. So she becomes all Comanche, and she marries a Comanche. But yes, but to the, but to the Texans who are talking, who are remembering her and thinking about her and mythologizing her, this idea that she's she's had sex with Indians that she, is that she's been defiled in some way or that she's been damaged. It's a, considered a fate worse than death. Um, and so, you know, Cynthia Ann's family hunts for her for many years, and eventually they do get her back. Uh, and they treat her very well, but they they're not anthropologists or sociologists or psychologists. They have none of those tools understand what's going through her mind and why it is that she's so miserable now that she's been dragged back to so-called civilization and two of her children and her husband are you know are Comanches and they're they're only a hundred miles away but there's no way she can hook up with them again no way she can get back to that world that she had grown up in so it's only natural that she is alienated upset desperate to get home but there's no way home for her. And she really is a tragic figure when you think about it. She was victimized twice by these Texas Comanche Wars. 
first time when she's kidnapped and five of her relatives are killed in front of her by Comanches. And then again, when the Texas Rangers and the cavalry come and supposedly rescue her, mm. kill the people around her and drag her back to civilization. Um, you know, this, it's a sad thing. And it's, and it's a, to me, it's really a story about the damage, the human damage of these kinds of struggles. You know, this was, this was an intimate war. By that I mean, remember, it's back in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. They didn't have, you know, they didn't drop bombs from airplanes or, you know, or artillery. They killed their enemies up close. You looked your enemy in the eyes. You shot him or knifed him or whatever. And also, the enemy was everyone. Families were living on the frontier, and Comanches were living among their families. And so there was no line between military and civilian here. The actual aim of the war was to wipe out other people's families, uh, to destroy their civilization. This was a war, really, a real clash of civilization. We hear a lot of um, you know, dubious rhetoric about a clash of civilizations today. That was a real one back then. And in the end, of course, the Comanches lost and their civilization more, was more or less destroyed. And that's really a lot. Of, interestingly, I, I, the movie um, is about that, too. It's about families and it's about this, the, the bitter losses and, and what happens to people. And, and that's one of the reasons why Searchers is such a great movie, because there's so many conflicts going on within it about what's the fair thing to do to your enemy. What do you do uh, to rescue your family? Because, as you may recall, Anon, the John Wayne figure here, the uncle, he's going to, he's trying to get his, to get his niece away from the Comanches. But if you recall, what's his plan? Is he planning to bring her back to and restore her to the family, or does he have a darker goal here? And it's sort of implied that initially he does go, in fact, to rescue both of them. But when one of them dies, I think he comes to develop an intention to kill the other one. That's how I've always exactly. interpreted it. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And it's also, remember, time, five years has passed, and she's no longer a little girl. She's a, you know, and she's no longer a little white girl. She's a Comanche, and she's of age um, at the point where she will be married and where she will have children and where she will suffer this fate worse than death. And so this is kind of an honor killing. Um, he's going to kill her to restore, you know, to, to save her from this fate and also to, to, for the honor of the family, you know. Uh, this is what people want. And, you know, it, it's the racism of that time is made quite clear here because people say it's not just John Wayne, the uncle, who's a kind of crazed, you know, determined, almost sociopathic figure. Um, the entire community basically supports the idea of wiping out the Comanches and the idea that, you know, uh, having sex with Comanches is a fate worse than death. It's a community value, and so you've got these two communities that are out to destroy each other. And we have John Wayne, who we, we want to, you know, we want to root for John Wayne. He's our charismatic hero. He's, you know, he's got a lot of virtues. He's a great fighter, and he knows a lot about Indian culture, and he's He's a man you want on your side in a desperate situation. Oh, yes. So we're, we want him to succeed. And yet, when we realize he's out there, he's going to kill his niece. But that's his goal here. You know, it's repugnant and, and scary. And we don't know what he's going to do. And that's, that tension, you know, builds throughout the movie. What's going to happen when Uncle Ethan catches up to little Debbie? 
And um, I'm not going to say what happens because I think it's, uh, it would spoil the movie. But this is the tension that drives that movie, and it's a tension built around race, built around sex, built around all of our darkest fears of the enemy and of, and of what we need to do about it. And when you brought up sex, there is this character, Martha, and Ethan, it's sort of implied that Ethan and her are in love, and that love was either never consummated or, or we don't know for sure. And in the scene where Ethan and his men go to the house after it's been burnt down, we see the blue dress as it's been stripped away from the body, which is to imply something horrible happened. And then Ethan goes into the house and we see uh, through the dark him as he's going into it. And then it's sort of implied that Martha was taken by the Comanches and then something terrible happened. A fate worse than death and then afterward death happened. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's much doubt that the, that the, you know, that John Ford is meaning to tell us that Martha was raped and then killed, and, and then uh, Lucy, the older sister, was raped and killed later, was abducted and then raped and killed. That Debbie, Debbie being younger, um, being nine years old at the time, was brought into the Comanche world and was not treated that way. She was adopted uh, by a family and then becomes the bride of a Comanche warrior. Very similar to what happened to Cynthia Parker. So, yes, rape is there. The deepest sort of psychological fears that people could have are, are out in front of us. They're, they're, you know, they're in the original story, in a sense, and they're in the novel by Alan LeMay, but John Ford raises them right up to the surface in many ways because his Ethan is out to kill his niece. And I should add to this, you know, it's not like Uncle Ethan, the John Wayne character, is very happy about coming to the conclusion. Oh, I'll just go kill my niece and everything. He isn't happy at you know? all. No, he's torn. He is a miserable person. He can be very charming and charismatic, but he, but he's also the, the center of him is misery and tragedy. He has he a very dark humor too, actually. And one scene, he's saying like the engine will like ride his horse and then eat it. That's basically a dark humor. That's like feels so wrong to say, but it's. Not exactly well, funny, but it's like... It. <laughs> you know, that he, he's, he's in a way praising, grudgingly praising the resourcefulness of the Comanche. Ride the horse, ride it till it drops from under him, and then, he, then he'll eat it. Um, you know, to survive, to keep going. That a Comanche is, a, in a sense, you know, a, a worthy opponent. But you're right, it's very sardonic. He's a, he, he's, he, he doesn't want to kill his niece, but, that's, but he's a man of violence man of gun violence that's what he's good at that's why we want him on our side he's an indian fighter and a killer but you see in his the way he approaches this and the lines in his face and his expressions and the way he talks he's not happy about this he's torn he's struggling throughout the movie between this impulse to set things right with violence and his understanding is or his realization that you know some things can't be made right that, that way. And this is a movie about love versus hate in, in a really profound way. Um, Martin, the, the adopted uh, son, who is Debbie's adopted brother, in the movie has is one-eighth Cherokee, has some Indian blood. That's not the case in the novel, incidentally. Um, but Ford gives that to him, I think, to complicate things even more, because this is a blood feud, actually, and this is... You know, you're either you're either white or you're Comanche or you're an Indian. Well, Martin is, is a little bit of neither, and so Ethan, who comes to have great respect for Martin over the course of their journey together, 
has to cope with that as well. And that's why I love this movie, frankly, because it is a psychological epic in a way, and it brings all the things, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly, if you will, um, out to the fore. And with our hero, John Wayne, with this great, you know, American icon, and Wayne gives a fabulous performance. I think he's awfully good. I think we see all of his dilemma and his conflicts. I absolutely um, and, agree. And, you know, so Wayne is, you know, so between John Ford and John Wayne, um, they've created something here that is deep and complex and also highly entertaining. It's my way of thinking, not just the best Western ever made, but I think the best American movie ever made. And I'm not the only, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who thinks that Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and George Lucas all thought the searchers all modeled some of their own works after the searchers and 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 reached out for this and and also see it as just about their favorite film. For others, it's like Citizen Kane being the greatest film ever. For me, a searchers is my favorite film at the moment. <laughs> well, sure, there, there'll be another one coming down the pike, and I'm sure there are many you haven't seen yet. You oh know, yeah, from the past. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, everybody's got their favorite. I mean, that, that's just the nature of the beast. It's not a question of trying to convince someone that they need to love Searchers or consider it the greatest movie. What I was out to do in my book was just to write about its complexities and the brilliance of the people who made it and what happened to, to them and all, to all the storytellers from the people who told Cynthia Ann's original story right up through John Ford and John Wayne. It was a gr great, you know, as you can imagine, it was great fun to work on, and I learned so much doing it about those original wars and about Hollywood and about who John Ford was and why he is, I think, and arguably America's greatest film director. It almost reminds me the movie of the Iliad, which Martin Winkler, a scholar, compared it to. I think he made some telling comparisons between Achilles, the Greek hero, and Ethan Edwards. And I think Gary Wills, an American author, also picked up on this. Basically, both of them are great heroes. They're great at what they do, but they're kind of outsiders. They're, they can't be part of civilization. Which brings me to High Noon, where you have a very different hero, an uh, ex-sheriff or ex-marshal, who wants to join civilization and, in some senses, is joined to civilization. He's married, and he will run a store later on, but he has to, like, fight to save his community. And he leaves his community not because it's what Western heroes do, but because the community turned its back on him. Yes, exactly. He, he, he's on a journey also. It's a, it's a much smaller one than, than Uncle Ethan and, and, you know, and Odysseus. But nonetheless, it is a, it's an 80-minute journey through the heart of his own community where he learns a very grim uh, and bleak lesson about morality and courage, because he's expecting he's going to be able to get his friends together. I mean, remember, he's been the marshal here, as you suggested. He, For five years or more, he put down, you know, violence in this community and sent off the bad guys to prison and, and, and gave them the opportunity to be prosperous uh, and to raise children and all that in this town. And then when the bad guys returned, there are only four of them. If he can get 10 or 15 people to line up with him and, you know, and form a posse and stand up when these bad guys, when the noon train arrives, surely they can overcome this. Um, but he can't. He can't get anyone to stand with him. Um, and part of it is they're scared. And part of it is they just don't care. And some and, of them even uh, like the guy. Apparently, it's a little right, too. Right. Some of them never liked the guy. Yeah. They, they liked it when it was wide open, you know, uh, a uh, town where you can make a lot of money selling liquor and, you know, and 
prostitution and all that, sure. Some people were on the side of the bad guys, but the good folks, the folks he meets in church, he goes, you know, this is all taking place in an 80-minute period on a Sunday morning, and so all the good burgers are lined up in church. And he goes to the church to plead for their support. And even there, uh, and that's where, incidentally, I think you see, or Wayne could see a little bit of this leftist critique we were talking about earlier. Both the, the church itself and the, and the figure of the congregants who won't help him, and the reverend who basically, when asked, well, what should we do, says, I don't know. God's taking a holiday in this. In other words, he, he's not taking a stand on this. And meanwhile, the, 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 the town councilor, in effect the mayor, who's the marshal's best friend, gives up and gives a speech where he praises the marshal, and then he tells him, you'd better leave town. Yeah, that's one of the most backhanded compliments I've ever seen in a movie. Like, Marshall's great, and da 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 okay, let's get the marshal out of here by the end of the whole speech. And I can just see Glenn, Gary Cooper's face just, like, feel the betrayal there. Yeah, it's a beautifully—when we talk about great acting, that is a great moment for Cooper. Very little. You know, you see the shoulders just sag a little bit. He blinks his eyes a few times. He says, thanks, and he leaves. He doesn't have time. You know, he's up against the clock, so he has no time to debate this guy. And in any event, he can see, you know, he, he's so stunned by this betrayal. This is his best friend. This is the guy who was telling him an hour earlier, oh, we can take care of things, you know, now that you're not Marshall anymore. Basically, it's condemning him to die because if the Cooper character has to go off on his own, those four young bad guys, you know, the odds are they're going to kill him. They're going to chase him down and kill him, and the town isn't going to do a thing about it. As one so of his ex-girlfriend says, ex-girlfriend Helen Ramirez, is that the name? That's right, Helen Ramirez, who has the most insight of any character into what's going on and verbalizes it. Yeah, this town, you know, he's going to be dead in a half hour, and no one's going to do anything about it. And when he dies, this town is going to die. I can smell it already. You know, she's absolutely right. Um she understands. And so, you know, but the marshal is a determined man. He doesn't want to be a martyr. He's just gotten married to a beautiful young bride, played by Grace Kelly, incidentally, in only her second movie role. And he wants to, you know, he wants to have a good life. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be a martyr. And yet, for reasons of morality and pride, he can't walk away. He can't leave the town to the, you know, to being pillaged by these four bad guys. He has to stand up, and he expects other people to stand up. And at the end of the day, when they won't stand up, he still does. And so it's a, it's a more straightforward thing in a way than searchers. Um, but it is an act of courage. But I think the reason we love this movie so much is it's reluctant courage. We, and, and we sort of see, it's a very American tale. Uh, we'd like to, you know, when we think of ourselves on our better days, Americans think of ourselves as reluctant heroes. We're not, you know, we don't want to take up arms, but if you push us too far or you do something terrible, then we're going to take up arms. Then we're going to fight back. We're not going to stand for it. Um, You'll recall the, maybe this new Clint Eastwood movie, The 517 to Paris, about these three young Americans who stood up uh, and stopped a uh, terrorist from, you know, a potential massacre on the commuter train uh, a couple of years back. That was sort of a Gary Cooper, you know, Marshall Will Kane moment. Um, these guys weren't on the train to be heroes. They're just trying to get to Paris. But when faced with something and without a choice and feeling they had no choice, 
they rushed the guy, and they were very lucky to do him. That's a kind of American moment, or at least, as I say, how we like to think of ourselves. Reluctant to take up arms, but don't mess with us, because once we do, you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to fight to the end. And this shows another side to the searches, which is like showing the other side of the American experience, which is about conquest and heroism and pursuit and not giving up. I mean, in High Noon and the searches, you show and you see a kind of persistence in both heroes, but of very different sorts. Ethan Edwards is a bit reluctant about killing Debbie, but not reluctant otherwise about killing the Comanches. That's a very good point. Uh, I think you're right. The, the, those things are, those are similar themes. Now, you know, Searchers is not condemning the American settlement of the West, though. I mean, it is, it is morally uh, ambiguous. Um, what Searchers is presenting is the complexity of, of that. Um, civilization's coming. Um, it's a good thing in some ways, a bad thing in others, I suppose, but there it is. And um, so it's not just owning it, it's just kind of presenting to us the price, the human cost of it. Another great John Ford movie of his latter period is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. takes up the same theme uh, of civilization and its, and its you know, cost. And also takes up this theme of the man with the gun who helps save civilization, or, or, you know, but who can't be part of it. And, you, and the difference is in, in searchers, he can't be part of it because he's a man of violence, ultimately, and there's no place for him in a peaceful world. In, in High Noon, much different, because Carl Foreman is making a much different point, which is that the man who, who protects the community can't sit, and who's the moral exemplar of the community can't stay in it because the community itself is corrupt. So there's a lot of, you know, within this theme, you know, of these two films, there's a lot of maneuvering and a lot of moral ambiguity going on, and, and they're, not, they're not making the same point, but they are about the same thing. And, of course, the community corruption foreshadows a much darker Clint Eastwood Western called High Plains Drifter, where a morally dubious stranger comes in and trains this morally dubious community to defend itself. But the community is sort of under judgment for a crime that happened under its auspices and which they didn't do anything to stop. Right. It's almost, it almost takes up where High Noon leaves off in a way. But it also, because it's 25 years later or so, it's much more violent and amoral, in a sense. It's and John Wayne hated it again. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Eastwood is, but Eastwood is really Gary Cooper's successor in many ways. He, he's a very similar kind of character, but much more amoral, much more willing to shoot a man in the back, let's say. In Dirty Harry, which is the movie that I think in many ways compares to High Noon at the end, Harry kills, dispatches the bad guy, but he's so you know, he's so alienated by the corruption he's seen on his side that he throws his badge into a, you know, filthy uh, lagoon. Uh, Cooper doesn't do that, but he drops the badge in the dirt and walks away, you know, and rides away. Both of them basically disowning society because of its moral uh, immorality. Yeah, Wayne believed that society wasn't basically moral and that he was a defender, and Wayne had no time for rebels, really. Um, he had time for individualism and for a number of things, um, and uh, but but he 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 hated high, you know he didn't like these kind of modern amoral existential uh, type films uh, that are the successors to Searchers and High Noon. But ironically, in both the Searchers and in Liberty Valance, 
he's and, and John Ford didn't like them either, but they're both sort of setting the stage for this new kind of movie that's coming along. They're trans in the, in some ways their westerns are transition transition from the old you know hero straightforward black hats white hats thing to that more modern Eastwood thing. It's but telling their logical successor. It's telling that a lot of the acclaimed researchers came from 1970s era filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. Of course, Steven Spielberg was the successor for the blockbusters and everything, but Martin Scorsese's movies are much more morally dubious. And I think of Taxi Driver, which is one of my favorites, when I'm thinking of The Searchers, because Travis Bickle is a much darker and much more amoral version of Ethan Edwards. And a much more Nazi-ish type villain, villain hero. Well, he, he's a, yeah. I just watched Taxi Driver a few weeks ago uh, for another project I'm working on now, and it was fascinating. It is a breathtaking movie and very, you know, uh, you're you're right. I mean, the violence is so strong, and and Travis Bickle is is a, such a disturbed person. I mean, Ethan Edwards is disturbed. But he's still within a moral context of his own, and he still can discern, and he's still in control uh, of his actions, whereas Travis Bickle is desperately ill. I don't know that Travis Bickle is a villain. I, uh, I called I him a hero villain. Hero villain, okay. Yeah, I think that's fair, though. I, I'm not sure he's either, but, but that's a good way of summoning up the ambiguity of it. He's just a man out of control. He can't control his own emotions. He, he wants to save the damsel, I suppose. But, you know, that's not really what it's about. It's really about him acting out his own morality play in his own terms. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a very strong, much more modern, much more, as I say, existential would be one word to look at it, uh, desperate sort of modern drama. I, I, I think it's very powerful and very effective, All you know, 40 years and more later, it's 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 an amazing movie, and and it is you know Martin Scorsese, it's his version of Searchers. He said that. I mean, Paul Schrader, who wrote it, you know, uh, mentions the Searchers because once again, it's a man setting out into a jungle, in this case, an urban jungle, to rescue a damsel uh, on his own terms, and the damage that he does along the way. So it's got the Searchers themes in it, but it's so different and and really marks a change in attitudes. Remember, it's post-Vietnam. It's, it's a time when our view of our own society has changed. It's post-Watergate. Um, yeah, our respect and reverence for the community is basically shot, <laughs> at least among these creative filmmakers. And there's Taxi Driver as a resonance because of that that it wouldn't have had earlier. I completely agree. And I want to come back to The Searchers and High Noon. How do you think like the villains are depicted in both films in in the, in the searches, you have the Comanches, and in the High Noon, you have Frank Marshall and his gang. And oftentimes, I think most of the time is depicted more to the hero than the villain. So, in a sense, the heroes are more interesting the vil- than the villains because. And that brings me to another point because I think we sometimes assume that villains are by default more interesting than heroes because villains are more complex and more villainous, and we like that kind of villainy, whereas heroes are all good and sunshine. And I think the searchers and High Noon, in their own ways, in their own very different ways, are helpful correctives to that assumption. That's very. That's a very good point. I mean, I generally I find villains more interesting to write about than heroes, uh, and I find villain and then victims. Victims are not very interesting. Villains are, or people who are doing bad things. Let's not call them villains, but you know, the people who are trying to justify bad deeds, 
Um, and, and Wayne is a little bit of both, uh, again, because his mission is, uh, you know, is to do something quite devastating. Um, and so Wayne is not, a, you know, he's, he's John Wayne, so of course he's our hero, but he's not. That's one of the beauties of the, of the movie. I think the villains, but I, I think you make a good point. You know, the, vill- the Comanches are the rapists and murderers in the first part of the movie, and we'll never get over that vision of them. Nonetheless, as the movie unfolds and the journey continues, we see them being victimized as well. The, you know, we go, we see this Indian village that's been destroyed by soldiers and, and with bodies strewn around. We don't know those people the way we knew the family that had been killed by the Comanches, but we still feel for them. And the one Comanche woman who we do know, her name was Look, whose body is there. You know, we feel terrible, as do the two searchers, for what has happened to her, that she's been murdered by soldiers. So it begins to become a slightly more complex portrait. When the John Wayne character meets Scar, the evil Comanche warlord, we learn that Scar's two sons were killed by soldiers, uh, by white people, and that's, that that's one of the reasons for his raid. So revenge versus revenge. And there's, it, you can't help but notice similarities between Ethan and Scar, even in the way they're filmed. I don't know if you recall. Recall that one moment where the two of them are standing almost nose to nose outside Scar's teeth. I remember. I remember. It's yeah. like a very effective well, like are. setting the two against each other. Exactly. They mirror they are mirror images of each other in a way. They are warriors. They are men of violence. That's all they know. That's all they're good at. So that's a little more complex. Now in high noon the villains look terrific. It's wonderful to see them. You know, uh, there are three or four scenes of them waiting around the train station. And and they're all kind of snarly, but they they have uh, none of them are charming, but they're they're interesting looking people. And then when when Frank Miller gets off the train, we're expecting to be to see the ultra villain, right? And yet Frank looks like a sort of businessman from the north, um, you know, with a with a rancher's outfit on. He's all business. He's got very little to say. You know, are we all ready? You know, then let's get going. You know, and. He, and they're very few. He's a man of very few words, and we know his mission is one of, of evil. But uh, he doesn't look, you know, we never, we always, it's always by implication. One of the artful things about High Noon is we never really learn what Frank Miller and his gang did when they were in town, or, or all the evil things. We, we hear that he's, you know, he can be really bad, but we never hear the details. You know what he's like. You know what he's like. They say that more than once about him, and what he's like sounds pretty terrible, but we, d- we never know the specifics. Yeah, and it's sort so of implied that really he was supposed to hang for murder at one point, but then the state pardoned him. I think that's all we are know in detail. Yeah, so we know he did something that was worthy. Yeah, hang for murder, exactly. So he's kill- He's a killer, but we know no- none of the details. But you're right, the, You know, we don't get the stories of the villains. We don't get anything complex. We get to see how bored they are. We get to see um, how superficial um, uh, Ben, the young Miller, the younger brother is. We get to see them destroy themselves in a real sense. Um, ben, if you remember, you know, when they're about to face the showdown with the marshal and they're walking down the street looking for him, Ben breaks a shop window so he can get out a bonnet, a woman's bonnet, so that after they've killed the marshal and they have a big carousing evening, he can give it to some to uh, the marshal's uh, new wife, who he's obviously intending to abduct, or someone else, you know. And yet by hitting the glass, he gives away, you know, he creates this noise that alerts the marshal that the bad guys are just around the corner. And who's the first one to get shot and killed in the showdown? It's Ben. 
So Ben has always carried the seeds of his own destruction, but that doesn't make us sympathize with him. It just makes us realize what a dumb <laughs> jerk he was. I completely so, agree. Yeah. I don't think I sympathize yeah. with any of the villains like I might do in The Searchers, and not exactly sympathy in The Searchers, but I can understand them in a way that High Noon doesn't care to do, and perhaps that's alerts to a major difference between the two films and how they treat heroes and bad guys. Yeah, I agree. Now, the last thing I would mention along these same lines is the way, look at the women characters in both movies. There, I think they're very interesting and very similar in their respect for certain women characters. You know, Searchers looks just like it's a macho epic, and Natalie Wood gets a few minutes of screen time, but we don't really care about Debbie. She's not really what the movie's about. But Martha, the killed, you know, uh, John Wayne's uh, uh, sister-in-law, a woman he loves and who dies early on and is brutally raped, her her spirit hangs over the movie. Uh, this question of love versus hate, the women and their working agent, if you will, Martin, are pushing, you know, are trying to get Debbie back out of love, out of restoring the family, whereas Ethan is trying to find Debbie in order to kill her out of hate. And so what the women stand for and who they are is really well done and interesting. And then the two women in High Noon are fabulous. The, the Marshall's uh, Quaker new bride, who's a Quaker and who doesn't believe in violence and who is in conflict with him, who's very angry, doesn't understand why he has to stay in this you know, violent town. And then his former mistress, who's still in love with him but very angry with him. These women are both very angry with him, and yet they're both in love with him, and they both want to save him but they don't know how. Um, I'll leave it at that because I don't want to give away the ending of High Noon either, but they're very strong characters. They, you know, the, the mistress understands the situation in the town, as we said earlier, in a way that no one else does. Uh, the bride doesn't, but she has strong opinions. She loves her husband, and yet there she is standing up for her principles, which means that she's not going to, you know, she's walking away from him, and she has a tough moral choice to make as the movie goes on. I want to also bring back the question to music because the Searchers and the High Noon, they have very interesting relationships with music. Max Steiner and Dimitri Tomikin, both of the composers for the, both of the films. And you have the songs, the Searchers song, and there's also Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And they have very interesting thematic resonances which with their own individual films. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think you're right. And remember, High Noon is made first in 1951. And do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, that theme song is a crucial part of the movie. It's played throughout the film. It is, it, it, it's a narrative in the voice of the, you know, the marshal, who's not a very articulate man because he's a Western hero and he's played by Gary Cooper, and he really can't explain well why he has to stay in town, but the song kind of explains it, and it's him explaining it to his bride. Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, on this our wedding day. And so it's, beautif it's beautifully conceived and, and a, a sort of folk tune, um, and it's played throughout the movie, and it really ties things together thematically. It's as if it, um, the air is playing it, basically. It's as if the whole environment is playing it like a large natural speaker. Yes, it's, it's a, that's a good point. It's too bad the bride couldn't have heard the song because it would have explained to her what he was up to. Um, you know, but you're right. It's it's in there. It's part of the it's part of the whole atmosphere. Um, and again, it tells us more about the marshal than he can tell us. And so it gives us more sympathy for him and more respect for who he is and what he's doing. Um, 
you know, after that, every Western had a song, and Searchers was no exception. And the Searchers theme song, you know, is, is I, I think it's a lot of fun, and I, I like it a lot. Uh, it's not as it's not as crucial to the movie. The Max Steiner score is a little, you know, is uh, John Ford made fun of it. He said it sounds like the Cossacks are coming, but I think it's well done, and it repeats that theme uh, over and over again. And there are two themes in Searchers. One is, is what the Searchers theme from the beginning, which is often played when John Wayne, you know, when the Searchers go on to the next stage of their search, and it's powerful and evocative. But also this Martha's song, which is an old Civil War ditty about a a, a, a a love, an unrequited love that can't be honored and can't be fulfilled between two people, and that very much sums up the poignancy of of Martha, the sister-in-law's relationship with Ethan, her brother-in-law, because they clearly do love each other, and yet because of who they are, uh, Ethan's brother is married to her. There's no way they can in any way fulfill their love for each other. And so they pine. And, of course, after Martha's death, Ethan continues. His heart is broken, um, not just because he doesn't have the woman he loves, but he can never have her now and because of what's happened to her. And so it's a very powerful part of what's going on with Ethan. And the music, again, reminds us in a very sad way of all that is lost, not just Ethan's loss, but everyone's loss when a person like Martha is killed. So they're very effective. I completely agree, and I definitely like how in The Searchers it has its own like variations that play over and over. And I like that, even though the music sometimes does feel a little cliche at times. Yeah, well, yes, and in High Noon, Dmitry Tiamkin does some orchestral things that are also... Uh, a little outdated. If they just used the, the, you know, the folk song, I think that might have been even better. But they're, you know, these are movies of their time. Um, they're very well done scores, but they do date the movies a little bit in a way. We wouldn't be listening to those kind of scores um, if we were watching the movie today. I saw Dunkirk last year, which I thought was quite an extraordinary film, and the kind of score that was used there um, is much more modern. That's that's just a question of time. You know, we watch these old movies in part because they have so much to entertain us and tell us now, but we also watch them because they are old movies, because they give us a different era, not so much the era they're depicting, but the era they were made in, uh, the values of that era. And, and so hearing the orchestra, you know, you wouldn't want to change anything. You wouldn't want to colorize high news, you know, and you wouldn't want to take out any of the score of either of those films because that's, that's an integral part of, of what they were and what we honor when we watch them. We, we honor our own past, um, and that includes, you know, our, uh, our movies from the past. And I don't think we would really want to cut, all, cut out all the comedy scenes from the searches, even though they awkwardly fit, and I think that guy with the guitar is one of the most annoying characters I've ever <laughs> listened to. I mean, he's just one of the most annoying characters I've ever heard in a movie. Well, again, you know, I, I won't defend him. I, I, my family members are divided with me. My, my daughter is absolutely agrees with you that the whole comedy thing is ridiculous. My wife, on the other hand, is usually a pretty tough critic. She's had to see this movie a number of times in the past couple of years, you know, because I've, I've done talks about it here and there, and she often comes along. She's grown to respect all that. So, so do we'll I, actually. Leave that, leave that up to individual taste. I like parts of the comedy, actually. I think it awkwardly fits, but it does fit for the most part. It's Shakespearean, that's what I would say. You know, he often 
and it leavens the story because otherwise it's such a grim story. Um, audiences in 1956 wouldn't have been able to sit for it, and and I think it, you know, that's that's what it's about, and it, it works for me. But I'm not suggesting, and especially you know the, you know uh, the, uh, <laughs> the character, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't work for a lot of people. That guy went on to play Festus in Gunsmoke, so obviously this dry Colorado, dry lands accent worked for him. He hated doing it at the time. But uh, he learned to love it later. Which of the two movies do you prefer? I personally prefer The Searchers. Well, you know, I would have said the same thing, and I still think Searchers is the greater movie um, because it's so ambitious and so broad. Um, but I've really, I've watched High Noon a lot lately, you know, again, going around talking about it, and it's a perfect little movie. Um, and so... If you ask me for one, or you know, would I rather sit through one or the other? I would say, well, how much time do I have? <laughs> if I want something quick, an 86-minute, you know, uh, small plate meal, I'm definitely going for high noon. If I have the time for the, you know, for the two-hour main course, then I'm definitely going for Searchers. I've, I've come that far. I, I do think Searchers is the greater movie, but I think High Noon is a superb piece of work. And that and Fred Zinnemann's next film, From Here to Eternity, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's another... I mean, those two movies would make the case for anyone who needs to have it made that Fred Zinnemann belongs at the highest level of you know American cinema as well. They are great, great movies. I agree. High Noon, it feels just perfectly edited. I like the sequence where they're all waiting for Frank Marshall. Basically, it's about a minute or two, and the whole music score plays, and then it culminates in the whistle. I think that's one case where Dimitri Tomekin's score works. In addition to all yeah. the cutting of all the faces, it's just kind of like captures in just a few minutes how almost everybody is waiting, how everybody is going to be affected by this. And before I close, I want to mention how religion is treated in both films. In The Searches, it feels like religion is more part of the environment, more stitched into it, but it's not as overt as in High Noon 1, because in High Noon, the wife of the main character is a Quaker, and there's definitely the question of the minister who's, like, staying out of the whole business and is not going to do anything to help the marshal or the ex-marshal. Well, there is religion. You know, religion in the searchers is, is complicated in that you have the Ward Bond character, who's, uh, uh, who's both a, a preacher and a Texas Ranger captain. And uh, so he represents both church and state. Um, these are religious people. They have that funeral at Boot Hill, which, which Uncle Ethan breaks up. Uncle Ethan has no time for religion. Uh, he, treats re he knows about religion. He knows about Native American religion, because he knows the Comanches, how they feel about the afterlife. And he, and he shoots out the eyes of a Comanche corpse so that he can't go to heaven, essentially, has to wander forever. He knows all this. There are religious themes that are scattered through searchers, and as I say, many of the characters are religious, but religion is a, is a complicated thing. It's used to justify things, and, uh, uh, and, and our central characters have no use for it, even if they know it. In High Noon, again, yes, it's, it's very ambiguous. There's some religious iconography there, and, and, and Cooper who, if you remember, gets beat up toward the end of the movie by his uh, unfaithful deputy, and, and, you know, his body has been damaged, and he's, and he, you know, and he's walking through the town. He's not exactly carrying a cross on his back, but he might as well be um, in those last things, and you see the sweat pouring down. 
So there, there is religious uh, meaning, and and his bride being a Quaker, and you know, and then the church, but the church scene is very, you know, anti-clerical. Um, uh, movies can be complicated, and and these movies know their characters, and they know that religion plays a role in their characters' lives, and they honor that in a way, or at least they they account for it as they move on to the other things that they're about as well. I completely agree. I want to thank you for joining this show. I think your comments have been great. I think these movies that we're talking about are great. And I want to thank you so much again. Well, you're welcome, and this is fun. And, um, you know, I, ho- I wish you the best of luck with this project because you're obviously touching on many important things in our history and our past and our meaning. And um, it's always fun to talk about these great films. And I would like to ask a small favor. Please do share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. And if anything, I would like to invite more great guests on the show. Do you have any good suggestions? Hmm. Well, I would look up, you know, up and down the bestseller list for people who are writing, you know, on interesting things. Um, Because, and, and I think this is a time, you know, as we were talking earlier, you know, where our values and it's an important moment. And that's, that's a good opportunity for someone like you uh, who has a platform to really explore whatever it is in the, in the current, you know, conflict and debate that you think needs more illumination. And so, and then finding the right person to do that. So I would start by what is it you want to, you want to really focus on and then who can I get? Um, who can I get being the second question and what is it that I'm really after being the first? But I know it's hard to get people on. Um, I'm, I'm, I try to talk to everyone I can because I think it's important. And, and I think these are, especially in this time, it's important. I've given a lot of more book talks than I thought I was going to give in part because people have a lot of questions relating you know, high noon, especially to our modern era. And I think that's a good subject to explore. So finding other movies that are relevant, talking to other people with that background might be interesting. Thank you for your helpful advice. Until next time, this has been the Letter of Liberty. Please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Tune in next time for our next guest, where we will discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.